We've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke. We come to Luke chapter 18, uh, verses 31 through 43 this morning. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. The scripture reading today comes from Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 43. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, come to you this morning and we pray that you would send your spirit to be with us. Uh, We desperately need your spirit to work in our lives and to bear witness to Jesus that we might see him clearly. Uh, Jesus, you say you're the one that opens the eyes of the blind, Uh, so open our eyes this morning that we might see you, uh, that we might know you, and that we might experience your grace. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, I have a very good friend uh, who is colorblind, and he told me a story uh, years ago about uh, the day that his wife bought him some of those colorblind glasses. And I'm sure I'm going to butcher explaining the mechanics of how these things supposedly work. And one of you can correct me after the service and I'll get it right for the second service. Uh, Unfortunately, this is the one that goes online. So I'm sort of stuck with my errors. But um, uh, apparently there's these colorblind glasses for people who are colorblind. And once you put them on your nose, what they do is they filter out certain wavelengths of light uh, that are overwhelming like your ocular system so that you can actually see the beauty of color. So it works by filtering out some things that are distorting your field of vision. And so he was really excited about this. In fact, um, he, just, he, he wanted his wife to film him putting them on for the first time. Um, you know, I don't know if you've seen some of those videos about children who hear for the first time or whatever, you know, and they're, you know, they're Faces light up and they cry. So I guess he was envisioning putting something on the internet uh, where he puts the glasses on his nose. He's like, I can see color, you know. Uh, but he, his wife takes the camera. She's got it on his face. He puts it on his nose. And he just says, dang, it didn't work at all. <laughs> Couldn't see any color at all. Now, I, 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 the reason why I bring this up is this morning we're going to be talking about vision. We're going to be talking about sight. And uh, I don't know if you've picked up on this, but all of Luke 18 has really been like a midterm exam for us in the Gospel of Luke, forcing us to ask ourselves the question, how well do we see? 
How, do, how well do we see Jesus in the kingdom that he is bringing? And we talked about some of the questions that have been raised as we've moved through the gospel of Luke. Um, that if the kingdom is here in Jesus, who's in, who's out, how do you receive it? And so let's do a little review for a second of Luke 18. Is the kingdom for desperate widows who cry out? Yep, it absolutely is. How about for scummy tax collectors who beg God for mercy? You bet. Is it for self-righteous Pharisees? Not so much. Not until they see their desperate need. What about children? Most definitely. Is it for the affluent and powerful? Not until it cuts you down to size. You see, this whole chapter has been about faith, the kind of faith that receives the kingdom. And the two, the two accounts that we're looking at this morning are stitched together by Luke, and both have to do with sight. As Jesus pulls his disciples aside on the road to Jerusalem, he begins by saying this word, see, edu in Greek, behold. He wants them to see something clearly about him and his ministry, but they don't really see because we're told in verse 34 that they understood none of these things. In fact, Luke emphasizes this three times that all adds up to basically they just weren't getting it. But in the story that immediately follows, a man who was blind actually can see and then suddenly receives his physical sight. You see, we hear sometimes that seeing is believing. Well, I guess we could flip that on its head and say that sometimes believing is a way of seeing. And so I want to talk about spiritual blindness and spiritual sight this morning and look at these two stories that Luke has given us. Uh, that involved Jesus' encounter with his disciples and then with a blind man who's begging on the road to Jericho. So let's, let's talk first about spiritual blindness. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover. He's traveling with an entourage. Some are his disciples. Others are pilgrims headed to Jerusalem for the feast. And along the way, he pulls his 12 disciples aside for some private instruction. And what he tells them isn't something that's altogether new. In fact, this is at least the third time specifically he's drawn attention uh, to these matters. And it may be about the seventh time that that he's hinted at it. And this is what he says. You need to know that I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Now see, the disciples, they had some big hopes and some big dreams for Jesus's arrival in Jerusalem. Uh, They expected the kingdom of God to appear immediately. And in fact, we're told this in the next chapter, verse 11. As they drew near Jerusalem, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And Jesus is saying, it's not going to be how you think. I'm actually on my way to die. Now, none of what was to happen would come as a surprise to Jesus. As a matter of fact, what he's saying is, this is my mission. Suffering, dying, and rising for my people. And this is my mission because this is the script I have been given in the scriptures. This is what the scriptures have foretold. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. As Drake might say, God's plan. God's plan, right? And the closer he gets to the end of his journey, the more detail he gives about what will happen to him. He uses graphic imagery here, rejection and abuse 
and humiliation. He says, I'm going to be delivered over. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be shamefully treated. I'm going to be spit upon. They're going to flog me and then they will kill me. Mistreated, disrespected, insulted. They're going to hawk loogies and spit on him. And then they're going to take his very life from him. And these are all part of the sufferings that he has to endure for the sake of saving the world. Jesus isn't, he isn't going as an unwilling victim. He's not getting caught up in some political brouhaha, right? He has a purpose. This is not out of his control. He is a willing participant in the Father's plan. And this is all part of the story of Scripture which he comes to fulfill. Now, you may be asking yourself, maybe you're new to the Christian faith, and you're saying, like, I, I don't, I'm not tracking with this. Like, what, what are you talking about here? And uh, point me to a few texts in the Old Testament. And you know, this is what's amazing. It's not just a text here and there. It is a pattern that we see throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. And you find it not only in the prophets, you find it in the Psalms. For example, even if you have no experience uh, with, with the church or with the Christian faith, I would imagine that at, 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 at some point in your life, you have heard about what Jesus cries out on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That comes from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is all about a righteous one who suffers even though he's innocent and then who is ultimately vindicated by God. Psalm 22 says he would be forsaken. He would be mocked by his enemies. He'd be tormented by thirst. He would be pierced through his hands and his feet. One picture, one picture that, is be, that will be filled out and embodied by Jesus. There's another place in the prophets, in Isaiah. You get this theme of the suffering servant, one who is chosen by God to rescue Israel, and yet you find this suffering servant, we're told in Isaiah 53, despised and rejected by men, wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, until finally his life would be poured out unto death. You see, the whole story of the scriptures of Israel collectively bear witness to the purpose of God, which finds its fulfillment in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, if some of you may have been to our Intro to Grace class, which is kind of one of the steps along the the way to becoming a member uh, here at Grace, and 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 I use this analogy... Okay, uh, sometimes we talk about like, how does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament? Uh, we treat it like a interpretive Where's Waldo. Do you remember those Where's Waldo? You're like, oh, there's a scarlet cord hanging from Rahab's thing. That's scarlet is like the blood of Jesus. And it's like, it's not like that at all. Okay? It's every text is part of a history that's moving one direction. And that is to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's more like the Mississippi River. You know what the Mississippi River is? It's one of the largest rivers in the world, largest rivers in North America. But the Ohio and the Wisconsin and the Iowa River all feed into it. And guess what feeds into the Ohio and Iowa and Wisconsin rivers? All these other rivers. And guess what feeds into those rivers? All these streams and tributaries and waterways. And guess what feeds into those? Creeks and little smaller waterways. You have this network of waterways that all are going to one place, which is the Mississippi River, which leads to one destination, which is the Gulf of Mexico. That is the Old Testament. 
All these stories feeding into one stream that goes to one place, which is the death and resurrection of Messiah. And Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, you need to know that the way my kingdom comes is not how you think. It's going to come through me suffering and dying and rising for you. See, this is important, especially if this is your first time in church ever, if you're new to the Christian faith. Jesus, he didn't simply come to tell us how to live a good life. He didn't come to just say, hey, let me give you some good advice um, for how to make life work for you. And he didn't even come to simply just show us the way of salvation. He came to make the way. He came to be the way. And this is what's so astonishing right now at this moment in Jesus' ministry is the disciples are blind to this. It says they did not understand They could not comprehend. They just weren't getting it. Now, you have to ask, like, Jesus' words weren't unclear, right? It's not like, what are these nouns and verbs that you're using here? It's it's that they could not see how Jesus' death could possibly fit into the divine plan. Now, I want you to imagine that you're playing uh, high school basketball, and uh, doesn't matter, you're on girls' team, boys' team, doesn't matter, Um, you get news that LeBron James is joining your basketball team. Uh, You're immediately going to draw a conclusion, and that is, we will win every single game, right? (laughs) Now, imagine LeBron pulls you aside and says, hey, guys, um, here's the plan. We're going to lose every game. It wouldn't make any sense. You're like, why would we want LeBron James on our team to lose every game? You're here so that we can win. Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm going to win by losing. I'm going to gain the victory by suffering defeat. I'm going to bring the kingdom of God by being crushed by the kingdoms of this world. But the disciples couldn't get it. And you know why? Because they were blinded by their hopes and dreams. Their own hopes and dreams. Israel had been the whipping boy of the surrounding nations for forever And now they have a hero. They have a ringer. Won't he put the bad guys down and lift us up? Jesus says, I don't think you understand the deepest problem that needs to be solved here. See, if we're honest, we bring a similar spiritual blindness, even if we've been a Christian all our lives. Because we have our own hopes and dreams for Jesus and what he will do for us. And those morph into demands and expectations that we have for him. I have a right to be married. I have a a right to live free from depression. I have a right to be protected from illness. I have a right to be recognized for my hard work. I have a right to be blessed because of obedience. And then Jesus confuses us and disappoints us. I want you to think about your prayer life for a second as I think about mine. Your lists of Give me this and give me that. They reveal your heart's hopes and dreams. They show you your demands and expectations. And let me be clear. We are to bring our desires to Jesus. That is great. But how many times have you said, this isn't working or God isn't working here because it's not going how you imagined? See, is it possible that what you pray for and long for most is actually less than what Jesus has to offer you? Is it possible that what you 
most deeply desire and cry out for is less than what Jesus wants to do for you. And you can't see it because you're blinded by your agendas and ambitions. See, it's easy to be blind. And the thing about spiritual blindness that is different from physical blindness is in physical blindness, you're immediately confronted by your own limitations. Immediately. But spiritual blindness, you can go a long time and not recognize it. And it actually takes a work of God to pull the veil from your eyes. You know, we're not just blinded by our hopes and dreams. Some of us are blinded by our pride. We won't say this out loud, but deep down, we don't think we need a suffering and dying Savior. What we need is some affirmation. What we need is a little moral instruction. What we need is a little help along the way to make life go the way we want it to go. But Jesus is saying, I didn't come to be your life coach. I didn't come to be your guru. I didn't come to be your financial advisor. I didn't come to be your co-pilot, by the way. I came to be your savior. And many of us are so frustrated with our relationship with Jesus because he's not doing what we expect him to do. And the good things that we do attribute to his work in our lives feel really bland and insignificant. And you want to know why? Because maybe we don't see our need for saving. Years ago, and some of you will probably remember this, um, you're old enough, 60 Minutes uh, had an interview that Mike Wallace ran with the Auschwitz survivor Yehiel Dunur. And Dunur was a principal witness in the infamous Nuremberg trials, the war crime trials. And uh, during the interview, uh, uh, Wallace showed Dunur this film clip from Adolf Eichmann's 1961 trial, in which Dunur was present, in which Dunur was a a principal witness. And uh, in this video clip, you see Dunur enter the courtroom, And he comes face to face with Eichmann for the first time since he had been sent to Auschwitz 20 years earlier. And as Dunner enters the courtroom, he begins to sob uncontrollably. And then he faints while the presiding judge is pounding the gavel trying to get order in the courtroom. And the question is raised, why did Dunner sob and faint? And he says it wasn't because of hatred and it wasn't because of fear. It's because he realized Eichmann was an ordinary man. And what Denier said was, I was afraid of myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he. And Mike Wallace entered with a horrifying statement, Eichmann is in all of us. That's a sobering reality, isn't it? To think that there's something so deeply wrong in us that we could be capable, given the right environment, or the right stressors, uh, to do some pretty awful things. But Jesus says, you need to know this is true about you. You need to see this. And unless you do, you won't understand the plan that is unfolding in my ministry. The divine plan is unfolding in Jesus's journey to Jerusalem. What is written will be accomplished. What will be accomplished is Messiah suffering, dying, and rising for his people. Because that is the problem that needs to be solved, the problem of sin. And the only answer is a suffering and dying Savior. That's the first story that we're given here. And right on the heels of this, Luke stitches together another account. And I don't think he's changing uh, uh, themes here. 
Because the second story gives us a little bit of a different picture, just as important. In the first story, we have disciples who can't see. But in the second story, we have a blind man who can even before his physical sight is restored. This blind man couldn't see everything, but he sees what is most important. And I want you to look at this story with me. Jesus is in the vicinity of Jericho, and the city is pulsing with excitement because we're approaching the time of Passover. So I want you to imagine the sounds. You've got camel hooves clacking. You've got the business uh, buzzing in the marketplace. You've got children playing. You've got people chatting it up. And this blind man comes out, taking his usual spot, begging by the side of the road. And then Jesus and his entourage are arriving. And there's a clamor. He can't see what's going on, but can he hear all the excitement and all the commotion. And he wants to know what's happening, why, why all the fuss. And they tell him, Jesus of Nazareth is here. Now, this man is unemployed and he is homeless. He's not well-dressed, he's not well-groomed, and he's blind as a bat. But he starts making a racket because he sees more than the crowds see. His heart begins pounding. He must have heard about Jesus. So he begins to cry out in a loud voice, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowds actually turn to him and say, shut your pie hole, all right? Uh, Sit down and shut up, okay? You get the sense that they see him as too much of a loser to be worth Jesus's attention. But Jesus notices him. Jesus hears the cries of the needy. The man is crying out again. And here, look, we... Let me just say this. We have a window into God's heart, right? He notices hungry, hurting souls. He's always pausing for the mentally ill, for the financially destitute, for the morally bankrupt, for the emotionally depressed, for the religiously unpresentable. I mean, add this to Luke's growing list, which we've been taking crack, you know, account of, that the kingdom is for the littlest and the least and the last and the lost and the left out and the losers. The kingdom belongs to such as these. You see, this blind beggar can't see Jesus with his eyes, but he saw him with his heart. He doesn't understand everything about Jesus, but he saw two things very, very clearly, even though he was blind. On the one hand, he saw his need. Like, some of that's obvious to everyone around. There's no special provisions made for people who were blind uh, in that culture. He has no means of income, right? That's why you beg. He couldn't protect himself from physical harm. Blind people would get beat up and have their, their, their money stolen, right? He's absolutely dependent and desperate, which is why he's begging on the side of the road. But this man sees more about himself than that because what he cries out to Jesus for is mercy. And in the Jewish world of Jesus' day, this cry was often associated with a recognition of spiritual poverty, of destitution, of need for saving, for rescue, for mercy. But this is what he also saw, that all his hopes and dreams were actually bound up in Jesus. He calls him the son of David. Now, do you know that this is the only time in the gospel of Luke that anybody calls Jesus that? Jesus is referred to as the son of David in the beginning of Luke's gospel. But this is the only time anyone addresses Jesus this way. Isn't that amazing? The son of David was the Messiah. The one promised to reign on David's throne forever. The one that God promised 
to send to save his people. We don't really know how he knew this. Perhaps he'd heard of Jesus' work. Whatever the case may be, many people found Jesus interesting. This man found Jesus essential. He said, I have no hope apart from him. Son of David, have mercy on me. And he cries out repeatedly. And as we've already mentioned, Jesus stops for him. There's never a bad time to cry out for Jesus. Um, But this is as good a time as any. Jesus has compassion on the desperate and needy. Jesus takes time for the hungry and helpless. Jesus never ignores their cries. He engages. And this is what he says to the man. What do you want me to do for you? Now, I know if, if you're kind of new to this Christian thing and you read stories like this, you're kind of like, I mean, I mean isn't it obvious? Like, why is Jesus asking him this question? You know what Jesus is doing? He's eliciting genuine faith from this person. This person says, Lord, Lord, let me recover my sight. You know, there's more here than we realize Because did you know that there's not a single instance of a blind person receiving their sight in all the Old Testament? And yet this is one of the things that God promised the Messiah would do. In Isaiah 35, 5, God says he will send his Messiah so that the eyes of the blind shall be opened. In Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, one of the servant songs I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind. No record of that ever happening anywhere in the Old Testament. And yet this happens again and again in Jesus' ministry. So this guy is asking for something big, and that something big is something promised, and that something promised is something only God's Messiah can give. This man is saying, you're the one. You're the one. You're the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus says, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Now, strictly speaking, it's not faith that saves us. It is Christ who saves through faith. But it's faith that is desperate, faith that binds all its hopes to Jesus. And this man receives what only Messiah can give. Recovering his sight, it says that he glorified God and he got up to follow him. Now, I want you to think about this. This guy's been blind who knows how long, but he can't see anything. And then his eyes are open, and the first thing he sees is the face of Jesus. And he's like, you're the one, and I will follow you all the days of my life. Now, he didn't know what the disciples had just been told. But one day he would figure it out, and he would become part of the early Christian church that walked in obedience to the suffering, dying, rising Savior. How do we know that? Well, Mark, because Mark gives us his name. His name is Bartimaeus. And scholars will tell, tell you that one of the reasons why names are mentioned in the Gospels is because they were known individuals in the early church. Look, this man rejoices and follows Jesus. You know, one of the things that Mark's true faith is that your life actually does become characterized by celebration. How much of your life is characterized by celebration? Wondering awe at the salvation that you have in Jesus. 
That's not a denial of the hurt and the pain and the very real sufferings and heartaches of life. But it's the kind that's able to rejoice in the midst of them. And that's real spiritual sight. You know, John Newton, um, who most of us know his name. Um, some of us don't know his story. Uh, he was a sailor. And uh, he was referred to by a contemporary as one of the most profane men I've ever met. He's a slave trader. And he lived a life of darkness. And then one night, he was caught in a terrible storm out on the waves, and he cries out to God. <laughs> cries out to him. And God rescued him. And that didn't immediately lead to his conversion. But that actually set him on a path that eventually did. Like the blind man who recovered his sight, <laughs> John Newton was rescued from the storm and then eventually came to worship Jesus. And what it led to is a following of Jesus the rest of his life so that he left that slave trading behind. 34 years after uh, leaving the slave trade, he published a pamphlet. It's this blazing pamphlet called Thoughts Upon the Slave Trade. And it describes the horrific conditions. It's a tell-all. And he makes a very public apology. And then he says these words, It will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. And then he penned Amazing Grace. And what are the words? I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. See, what we're given in the story of this blind man receiving his sight is a picture of salvation. It's God opening our eyes to who we really are in our need and opening our eyes to who Jesus really is and how he is the answer to that need. And at the heart of the Christian life is a desperate dependence on Jesus. You know, you really don't actually need much more than that. That's the soil out of which all other things grow because that is what faith is in its essence. God, I am a wreck and I need you to rescue me. And he says, I want you to look at my son and know what it takes is a suffering, dying, rising Messiah. But I have done that for you out of love. And I want you to get up and follow me. And here's the thing. Following Jesus means something that um, I think strings together a lot of disparate themes that we've been tending to over the course of the last several months. Following Jesus means, yeah, celebrating and rejoicing in the salvation that we have in him. But it also means following in his footsteps, walking the way of the cross. Because do you know how God is advancing his kingdom in the world right now? It's through his people suffering. That is the path of the Christian life. The kingdom in its fullness, when it comes, will mean no more sorrow, no more sadness, no more sin, no more shame, no more suffering, no more death for forever. But where we are now in the story means that we are people who take up our cross and we follow him. And the suffering comes before the glory. Death comes before resurrection. But faith finds its footing in its desperate need and then rolling all of its hopes into Jesus and the salvation he brings. Would you pray with me? God, we come to you this morning and uh, we pray uh, that 
the lens of this passage of Scripture would um, filter out the distorting wavelengths that keep us from seeing. But Lord, help us to see ourselves rightly in our, our desperate need and help us to see Jesus rightly in all the, the beauty and the glory that he brings with his kingdom, but how we're to walk in his footsteps, which is the way of the cross. Father, we're so thankful you did not spare your own son, and we cling to your promise that how will you not graciously give us all things? So God, give us that faith to see ourselves and to see your son, uh, that we might walk faithfully before you, and that we might celebrate the salvation that we have in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.